This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. I'm Sorry Monica is a letter to Monica Lewinsky. In it, the author, Carol Marsh, takes a soul-searching look at how she reacted to the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal in the late 1990s. She explores the roots of her feminism and the family dynamics that affected it, and shares how the Me Too movement jarred her into examining how she and other women unfairly excoriated Miss Lewinsky. Carol D. Marsh has won essay awards from a number of literary journals and festivals. Her essays have appeared in Los Angeles Review's Best of Annual Print Edition, River Teeth, Chautauqua Journal, and the Vassar Review. She is the author of Nowhere Else I Want to Be, a memoir. I'm sorry, Monica. Me too, Monica Lewinsky and me. Written by Carol D. Marsh. Read by Julie Niblett. So where, you might be wondering, were the feminists back then? It's a question that troubles me to this day. Monica Lewinsky, in a Vanity Fair essay, May 2014. Dear Monica, You don't know me, but I've been thinking a lot about you lately. What with Andrew Cuomo restarting the Me Too avalanche, and you being a producer on American Crime Story, Impeachment. As I said, you don't know me, but I feel like I know you. You're the Monica who had an affair with President Clinton. It was easy to make a trope out of you. Some bimbo who flashed her thong at the president. Who does that, I think, feeling morally superior? But that's not really knowing someone, is it? Recently, I've realized I don't know you at all. Sometimes I don't know myself. Is that why so many of us vilified you the way we did? The way I did? No self-reflection. I only did the righteous wrath thing. As someone who's called herself a feminist since 16, I feel ashamed to say I was lacking in the feminist insight department. I'm a lot older than you. I was a teenager through the late 60s and mid-70s when the women's liberation movement's second wave began. It made a huge impression on me. In the immediate sense, it resonated due to family matters. In the long term, well, I'm just now realizing it has taken a very, very long time for liberation to settle in. In many ways, it's still settling in. I should give you a bit of background. I was the third of four children born between 1952 and 1957 three girls, then a boy. 
I had a typical white upper-middle-class upbringing for the times, when girls were taught certain things. Be agreeable and likable. Do things for other people, especially men. Learn good housekeeping skills. Don't argue or be controversial. Dress modestly. Then there was the television fair of the time, which, come to think of it, isn't so different from what's on now. I learned that I should coo over clean kitchen floors and freak out about dirt on shirt collars. I should cook meals my husband likes and defer to the men and boys in the family. My father was an involved, nurturing parent, which at the time was not typical. For all his good points, and there were many, my dad had a habit of speaking contemptuously of women. We were bad drivers. Our skirts were too short. We looked fat in pants, which weren't ladylike. We were stupid and overly emotional. And my mom seemed to accept his opinions. Once, when I was in my 40s, I asked her why she hadn't challenged his views. I didn't know I could, she told me. I still wonder what was more powerful, my father's rants or my mother's silence. Then there was birth order. Think about it. The third daughter. No son for two more years after I was born. And when he finally did come along, my brother was the golden boy. It's not anything new, is it? One child being favored. And honestly, my two sisters say I was the favored girl among the three of us. But my brother always got the most Christmas presents. He was the one we'd get to ask my parents for something we all wanted, because they likely wouldn't say no to him. He got away with bad behavior more often than we did, and was the least punished in general. Yet he was also pitied. My father would bemoan my brother's plight. Poor kid, three older sisters. And men introduced to the family invariably said the same thing. I heard it as an indictment for having been born the third girl. I heard that I wasn't good enough. I wonder if your brother and father had a special bond like my brother and father. Maybe you'd understand this better if you ever felt left out or steamrolled as I did. Not that I think there shouldn't be a special bond between fathers and sons, but it sure had obnoxious components in my family. As my brother became a teen, he and my father grew closer, in large part because of the four females slash two males imbalance. They dominated family conversations. We females were over-talked and ignored. If we were granted a moment to speak, it was used mainly as a springboard to more twists of humor and discussions of the men's choice and lifestyle. My oldest sister was braver than I and fought to break through, earning approbation of a kind I couldn't bear to tempt. Until I was sixteen, I gave up and retreated into my own world from which I peered, sensitive and impressionable, at the family dynamics playing out about me. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, you asked, where were all the feminists back then? You got me thinking, and I find these things significant the way my father spoke about women, and my mother's seeming acquiescence. 
mid-century-style social and patriarchal lessons about good girls, the types of women role models available to me, and the often overbearing alliance between dad and my brother. Along comes the women's liberation movement. Women's lip, L-I-P, my brother called it. Viva la difference, my father would say, in an attempt, I think, to deflect controversy and make his point that men and women are different and should be content to stay that way. So in my mid-teens, I began to take up for women. I'd read news stories to learn more about feminism, then use what I'd learned to argue. The movement attracted me, mainly because it gave me a way to challenge the egoism of the two males in my house. Later, I learned that didn't make me a feminist. It made me talk like one and be angry at men like one. But after college, instead of following my dreams to join the Peace Corps, I married a man who was eight years older than I and had a three-year-old son. A man who, I found out, didn't love me and who often treated me with contempt. What was I thinking when I married him? There was part of me with a strong yearning for independence and experiences outside those of my narrow world. But I was, when it came down to it, too chicken to pursue them. I chose the, supposedly, safe route. A woman caring for others and not for herself. I wasn't thinking when I married him. After six miserable years, I finally divorced him, a decision that took all the guts I had. I got into the social justice work I'd put off for so long, moving to Washington, D.C. to work with homeless pregnant women. Then I started a place for homeless women with AIDS. I was in D.C. when the scandal broke in 1998. I first learned about it while in the car listening to NPR. I remember being furious with Bill Clinton. But wait, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me finish this part first. The other major thing that happened for me in D.C. was that I met Tim, a loving, deeply kind, and feminist man. We married in 1993. Tim embraced my vision for a home for homeless women with AIDS, we lived and worked at that place, Miriam's house, from the time I founded it in 1996 until I had to resign in 2009 due to chronic migraine disease. Tim and I are still married, 28 years now. I'm writing and managing my pain, and Tim is working at the city's largest agency serving homeless women. So, feminism. My feminist understanding grew by knowing Tim and listening to the women I lived and worked with. They spoke intimately of abuse, neglect, incest, addiction, and poverty, all things about which my sheltered upbringing had not given me a clue. They shook me to my core. Knowing those women taught me, even more, the intrinsic truth of the feminist saying, women's rights are human rights. They showed me how little there was of broader social justice in my feminism. Because of them, I began to feel the shabby inadequacy of my feminist principles. And because of you, Monica, I feel it again. 
And so, I've come to the part of this letter in which the Monica Lewinsky scandal tripped me up. First, what about that? The Monica Lewinsky scandal. Why not the Bill Clinton is a lying adulterer scandal? I was furious at yet another man who couldn't keep his pants zipped. But it was you I blamed. I thought mainly about the cost to his presidency, and little about you, Monica, except to criticize. I didn't defend or try to understand you. I didn't consider how unfair it was that your most intimate thoughts and feelings, secretly recorded in a stunning betrayal by a so-called friend, were made public. I didn't take into account the affair's power differential. I didn't stop to reflect that it was his responsibility to put the brakes on. Or better, to never allow the affair to begin. I don't remember feeling empathy for you except once, when I saw a photo of a large group of reporters with mics and cameras converging on the car you were in. I felt sorry for you then. I who hate crowds and think invasive press coverage must be frightening for the object of its obsessive attention. I remember the expression on your face, sitting there in the back seat. I remember you looked so young. Now, ever since women like Rose McGowan, Lucia Evans, and Amber Gutierrez had the guts to risk everything by saying openly what Hollywood knew, but had kept hidden out of sycophancy, greed, fear, and deference to Harvey Weinstein's power, I've come to a personal reckoning. With the rest of the country, I've experienced the avalanche that is the Me Too movement. It makes me think about how little I knew or cared about the person you were and the situation you were in. I've heard your TED Talk, listened to the Slow Burn podcast about the scandal, and read your two Vanity Fair essays. I know you don't consider yourself a victim. You've been clear that you entered into a consensual relationship with Bill Clinton. Far from being assaulted, you stalked him. Your saying this makes me admire you so much. Goodness knows you could choose to ride the wave of popular opinion, with so many of us wearing I Believe Victims pins and excoriating men like Andrew Cuomo. But you've chosen instead to claim your agency in the relationship, say you initiated the flirtation, and talk about how you were aggressive in the pursuit. In my reading, I've learned that women were divided about you and Bill. Many resorted to nastiness, launching sharp barbs against you. Some saw you as a victim who, young and deeply sensitive, unpaid and ludicrously less powerful than he, held no responsibility in the affair. Others said you were a sexual being, past the age of consent and well into womanhood. So why shouldn't you express your desires as you did? My guess is you've agreed more with the latter. But your taking responsibility doesn't absolve Bill of his. If anything, it makes you a lot more mature than he, and braver. Even now, he mumbles reluctantly about how he wouldn't do anything differently and doesn't owe you an apology, while you stand up and speak your truth. The contrast couldn't be starker. But Monica, he was the President of the United States. 
There was no more powerful man in the world. You were an unpaid intern. There was no less powerful person near him. With power comes responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. With more power than anyone else in the world comes more responsibility than anyone else in the world. Bill Clinton failed his responsibility in his relationship with you. He used his power to sneak around and then, when caught, lie to avoid responsibility. And I don't know what to say about Hillary in all of this. How did she ever get through that? And what would she say about it now, in the Me Too era? I believe in redemption. I would love to see the Clintons go to a Me Too rally or do a TED Talk and say, we were wrong in how we managed things when Bill's infidelities and assaults were reported. We were wrong in how we treated women like Paula Jones and Monica Lewinsky. In the spirit of the Me Too movement, we'd like to open the discussion and talk about what we did, why we did it, and how we'd do it differently today. You know, sadder but wiser. Honesty compels me to admit that I, too, maligned women like Paula Jones. I was mad at her for threatening his candidacy, so smitten with Bill that I didn't want to believe Paula. I didn't stop for one second to listen to her or be compassionate. That's what I mean about being an unfeminist feminist. And just as bad, I allowed his record on collective women's issues to obviate individual women's rights. I gave political expediency greater weight than a woman's right not to be assaulted and to speak up and get justice when she was. That makes me feel sick at heart as I type it. What was I thinking? So here I am, finally getting to what the Me Too movement has taught me. Somehow, your story, Me Too, and my redemption are tied up together, and I'm just trying to loosen the knot. As I read, I became outraged about all the accusations coming out against so many men, not all of whom have been proved guilty. But still, it's a long list. Donald Trump, Bill Cosby, Bill O'Reilly, Travis Kalanick, Chris Saka, Dave McClure, Roy Price, Lockhart Steele, Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Al Franken, Garrison Keillor. Matt Lauer, R. Kelly, Ryan Adams, Brian Singer, Les Moonves, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Brett Kavanaugh, Woody Allen, Adam Seeger, Morgan Freeman, Mario Batali, Tom Brokaw, Stan Lee, Larry Nasser, Michael Farrow, James Levine, Michael Madigan, Jeremy Piven, David Daniels, Gary Goddard, Russell Simmons, Roy Moore, Andrew Cuomo. I've lost my train of thought. Let me begin again. As I read and become outraged about all the accusations, as I listen to analyses by women whose feminism is more knowledgeable than mine, I've become aware that I've willfully disbelieved certain women in favor of men I liked or with whose politics I agreed. Yet on the other hand, I've believed women who've accused men I didn't like or whose politics I opposed. It pains me to say that. 
It stands for an ethic based in whim, ethics foundering on hard-edged rocks of impartiality and dispassion, to say nothing of self-awareness and honesty. I hope the Me Too movement has taught me, at least, to step back from my biases, politics, and opinions, to discard memes and soundbites in favor of impartiality. I hope I can harbor compassion above all. I just said I want to be impartial and compassionate. Can I have both? I think I can. I mean impartial in the sense that I'm honest with myself about my prejudices and don't allow them undue influence over how I approach reports of assault. And I mean compassion, not pity, not sentimentality. Compassion is realistic. It's gut empathy that flourishes despite the data, including all data within me. In the spirit of what I said about Hillary and Bill doing a TED Talk, here's what I would do differently if the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal broke tomorrow. First, I'd take a deep breath and sit with my thoughts and feelings. I'd name them. Anger. The guy cannot keep his belt buckled. Fear. If he's lying, what's he doing being president? Anger. What was she thinking? Remembered trauma. Another disloyal man I thought I could trust. Suspicion. Did she make it all up to get attention? Disillusionment. If all these stories about Bill and women are true, how can I respect or believe in him? Sorrow. He's let me down. And a reminder. There's a terrible cost in blindly abandoning a woman's rights and right to be heard in favor of any man. Then, I'd try to find out more about you. Not the gossipy stuff like where you bought that red beret, but substantive things like what you studied in college, where you grew up, who your friends are, how you're known by people who love you. I'd make myself suspend judgment for however long it took until the truth, or as much of it as is possible to know, was revealed. I'd choose not to give in to outrage and indignation, although I'd surely be feeling them. I'd guard against automatically defending one or the other of you. For centuries, men have had the upper hand in these situations, both when they're happening and then in controlling the public narrative and dodging criminal justice. Women have been victimized first by assault, then re-victimized because they're not believed by society, the press, and the courts. Women have also been re-victimized by other women who are co-opted and controlled by patriarchal and misogynist assumptions and norms, or due to survival strategies learned in unhealthy relationships, political necessities, or the need to align themselves with the powerful, have blamed the woman and absolved the man. And me too notwithstanding, it's still happening. Considering all that, I hope I'd be more inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt and rethink my reactions to the other women who had already made accusations. I'd allow for the likelihood of a predation pattern in Clinton's interactions with women. I'd think, 
as I did when the Cuomo stories broke this year. Men should no longer have impunity to act like this and not bear the consequences. I don't care how much good they might be doing or how strongly our political strategies and hopes favor them. If they treat women like this, they must be held accountable. Liberal, moderate, or conservative, Democrat, independent, or Republican, rich, middle class, or poor, straight, gay, or queer, black, brown, or white, priest or lay person, do gooder or do badder. They have to bear the consequences. If boys grow up knowing a high school assault will change their lives forever, if men understand they will lose their power, job, or both if they assault or verbally abuse a woman, they will have to stop or pay the price. Yet how is such a change to happen? Patriarchy, with its dependent insistence on male power and inherent supremacy, is ingrained in us. Just think about the ubiquitous phrase, boys will be boys, and how it underpins our complacence in male license and impunity. If boys' bad behavior and testosterone-driven excesses, their assumption of superiority, and their self-centered sense of entitlement are excused simply due to their gender, we're setting ourselves up for men will be men. We get a society in which we all, to some extent, believe men to be excused or justified in behavior, ranging from boorish to immoral, to cruel and to murderous. We get abusive priests, teachers, professors, physicians, and coaches. We get cyber abuse. We get the dominant practice of blaming women for rape, domestic violence, and male-on-female crime. What were you wearing? How much did you drink? What did you do to make him hit you? Why were you walking there at night when you know it's dangerous? We get parents who discipline and encourage their male children differently than their female children, so that both genders absorb the lesson and grow up to be those cheating, lying, raping men, and the women who protect them. We get a recipe for disaster. Girls are taught to acquiesce and be indulgent in a world where boys are taught power and that they should be indulged. We get Bill Clinton having an affair with Monica Lewinsky, lying about it, then never, ever taking responsibility. We get women like me who, though we may be furious with him, justify his behavior and attack yours. We get Melissa DeRosa protecting Andrew Cuomo's years of abusive behavior toward women. I'm sorry, Monica. Not for the whole mess, but for my part in it. I'm truly sorry. You've exhibited such grace. You've had the fortitude to endure what would have crushed me. And now you're out in the same world that effed you over speaking publicly for yourself and on behalf of bullied people everywhere. You embody grit, pluck, spirit, and grace under pressure as no one else I can bring to mind. And I admire you. Somehow, your story, me too, and my redemption as a feminist are tied up together. This letter is, I suppose, me starting to pick at the knot.
It's such a tangle of family dynamics, societal messages, male-dominated structures, and female acquiescence to those structures, political hopes, and my passion for social justice. I can't untangle it alone. How fitting is it that women like you, previously criticized, jeered at, hounded, or ignored, are showing women like me the way? kind of the same way the women of Miriam's house, discarded and forgotten by society, showed and taught me so much. There's a dialogue to be had here, a time of sifting through past reactions and actions. There's a way forward that depends on listening compassionately, on being unafraid to say, I was wrong. It depends on a dispassionate examination of our biases and how we learned them. It depends on women like you being honest about how we hand over so much power to men, and women like me to be honest about how, in our own ways, we've done the very same thing. The main difference being we were just lucky enough not to do it on an international stage. It depends on acknowledging the white privilege that's kept women like me blind to feminism's failure to include people of color. Remember what my mother said when I asked her why she didn't speak up when my father maligned women? She said, I didn't know I could. I think many of us women have made that mistake in our own ways, though we might word it differently. But if we examined those mistakes, got some honest dialogue going, and actually listened to one another, black, white, brown, old, young, rich, poor, we could redeem the whole mess. I believe in redemption, and I think we women could change the world if we had the slightest inkling of our potential. Because if women's rights are human rights, then women's redemption is humanity's redemption. This essay is copyright 2022 by Carol Marsh. This recording is copyright 2022 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.